following is a production of DallasCowboys.com and the Dallas Cowboys Football Club. How about this, Cowboys? This is Talkin' Cowboys. Streaming live from the Dallas Cowboys World Headquarters at the Star in Frisco. Hand off, Elliott plowing to the goal line. Barry sacked by Lord. Prescott keeps it, and he bangs it into the touchdown. Hello, everybody. Welcome into a special edition of Talking Cowboys. Not your normal four-group Talking Cowboys podcast. We've got some connections to talk to, and today we are pleased to welcome in ESPN host of Golick and Wingo. You've seen him all over the NFL Draft, NFL Live, Sports Center in the past. Trey Wingo joins us here on Talking Cowboys. And Trey, first off, thanks for joining us. And I, I kind of want to get into this quickly because uh, you're a busy man. But first off. I've heard a little bit of a rumor that you grew up a Cowboys fan. Kind of is that is this true? And, and kind of tell us how that became to be after somebody who grew up in Connecticut. Yeah, well, long story short, my whole family's originally from Texas. My mom's from Texarkana. My dad's from San Antonio. I have relatives all over the Dallas Fort Worth area, cousins and aunts and uncles, you name it. But um, we lived overseas for a while, and we came back to the States in the in the 70s, and the first football game I ever watched on television was a Cowboys game on Monday Night Football, and I liked the star on the helmet, and I was a, I was a young kid, and my parents were like, yeah, we're from Texas, like, okay, and that was a really good time to be a Cowboys fan, so really, that's how it got started, I mean, it was all sort of happenstance, but yeah, I, I was very fortunate, uh, through uh, the 90s, I took my dad to all three Super Bowls that the Cowboys won, and that was a lot of fun. And, and uh, So, yeah, that, that's how that all got started. It was, it was just sort of a weird connection, but it's been a lot of fun since. So it was the uniform and then just geographical happenstance that kind of turned into you being that Cowboys fan and kind of uh, growing into that. But what about your love for football? Because it seems like you've always kind of had your, your, your foot in the door of, of professional football has it really kind of been that way from the get-go absolutely when i was a kid um i used to subscribe to this thing called dallas cowboys weekly and uh, it was like you know like a 30 page in-house uh magazine that the, the team would put out but i because i lived in connecticut i was getting a week late so the game would be played sunday and monday or tuesday it would arrive in the mail from the previous games week and i would would uh, you know just pour over every page of that thing i used to collect you know football cards i used to try and draw plays as i was a kid like okay what if this would work and how would that would work and it's weird like i was i've been a sports fan my entire life and i enjoyed playing sports but there's no doubt that football and specifically the nfl and when i was a little young kid the dallas cowboys it was always my favorite sport always my favorite team and i you know i just i loved everything about it and I, i still to this day love everything about it i think it's the truest team sport there is um, you know, in any other sport, you can have one or two guys, for example, in, a, in a, let's say in the NBA, you have a couple of guys that are at the best of what they do, you're more than likely going to win. In soccer or hockey, you can have a really good team, but if you have a hot goalie, that changes everything. Baseball is really a one-on-one confrontation between a pitcher and a batter, and then everything else happens based on that. You don't have 11 guys pulling on the same side of the ball at the right time, on the right play. You don't have anything in football, and that's what I love about it more than anything. And, of course, being up in Connecticut, you're still nearby the, the NFC East country. You, you were near the Giants. You were near the Eagles a little bit up there in the Northeast. But 
kind of explain what it was like being a Cowboys fan in that region of the country, even as a youngster. Well, those teams sucked. So it was, great. <laughs> it was awesome. Uh, no, but you're right. It, it's weird. Like a lot of people, are like, why are you a Cowboys fan? Why aren't you? Because I grew up in a town called Greenwich, Connecticut, which is literally the first town over the water from New York State. It's like a bedroom community for people that commute into New York City to go to work. I mean, there were many of us, but uh, the Giants were terrible, so it didn't matter. Uh, uh, but yeah, it was it was weird, but I enjoyed it. I mean, look, it was a lot of fun. And you know, back then, uh, you know, you were born in what ninety six? Oh yeah, punk. Uh, <laughs> you know, we got we got two games on a Sunday afternoon, and I would just live for the updates to see what would happen. Uh, you know, on the Cowboys, it was my favorite thing. They, they used to do an old NFL film show called This Week in the NFL that would air like on Friday night on local stations about previous Sunday's games, and I would just I would wait to see the highlights of you know, Billy Joe Dupree, Tony Dorsett, Roger Staubach, all those guys, and the things that they were doing. It was just a lot of fun. Drew Pearson. Golden Richards, Robert Newhouse, you know, Bob, not Bob Lowy at that time, but, you know, Randy White, Harvey Martin, Tall Jones, how I could do Ralph Neely, John Fitzgerald, the entire offensive line uh, for the Dallas Cowboys in the, in the 1970s. It was great. It was a lot of fun. Cliff Harris, Charlie Waters. You just loved being that antagonist, even from a, an early age, just because of the success that the Cowboys were having overall. I love that. But you ultimately did end up coming back to Texas. You, you graduated from Baylor in the middle of the 80s. What brought you back to Baylor, by the way, just being a couple hours down the road from the Cowboys? Uh, well, you know, my, everybody in my family went to Baylor. My mom, my dad, not, I mean, not everybody, but like almost everybody. <laughs> Sister, and I went down there. And, you know, I wanted to do, I wanted to go someplace different for college just to get away. And uh, I, I applied to five schools. Uh, my first choice was University of North Carolina. I did not get in. Uh, and and then I, I uh, applied to Syracuse and University of Colorado and University of Missouri, and eventually I just I decided to, out of those four I wanted to go down and go, go go down to Baylor. I wanted to go someplace warmer and have a good time and had a blast and and be closer to some relatives in place I needed to you know get away off campus. So it was fun. I, I had a great time. To this day, I still have a bunch of friends that I we go on a golf trip every year that I, that were my buddies in college and still get together once a year. We had to cancel it this year for obvious reasons, but we've been doing that for about 10 or 12 years now. Um, so it was just, it was a great experience. I had a great time, and we went up to Dallas all the time. We wore out I-35. Uh, most weekends, we were the, either heading north to Dallas or south to Austin. Uh, and the few weekends we stayed in Waco, we, we managed to find ourselves a good time. But we went, we went north 90 minutes and south 90 minutes on I-35 quite a bit. As somebody who grew up in Waco, I can attest that I-35 <laughs> has had the burning rubber back and forth for youngsters throughout the course of history, I guess, since Baylor's been there. But uh, you then got your first job back in broadcasting up in the Northeast. You went back up to New York, and you were there kind of bouncing around a couple of different spots. But what was it like going from Connecticut to Baylor and then going to the big city of New York City and then kind of being around that area since then? Well, you know, um, my dad worked in the city for – he commuted from Greenwich for 30-plus years. So there was a lot of, like, teacher and service days when I was in school – where I take the train and go into my uh, go to work with my dad. He was uh, he was uh, a reporter, bureau chief for Life Magazine uh, in the '60s and '70s. And then when Life Magazine folded, he and two other guys created a magazine called People Mag. Ended up being the most successful magazine launch ever, and probably will retire that title because nobody's launching magazines. 
so it was fun to go in and see him work and, and do that kind of stuff, and it was a lot of fun. So getting back into the city, I enjoyed very much. I was a page at NBC at 30 Rock, and like literally, if you've ever seen the TV show 30 Rock, you know, the guy in the blue blazer, that's who we were. We gave guided tours of the building, worked Saturday Night Live and a bunch of other shows. That was fun. Then I made a demo tape and, and uh, sent it up to a bunch of stations and got a job in Binghamton, New York, and I was there for two years. Then I got a job in Allentown, Pennsylvania, where I got to do my first play-by-play as well as some local TV broadcasting for Lehigh University football and basketball. And I was there nine months and got a job in St. Louis. We were in St. Louis for six years and then moved back here in 1997. I've been here ever since. Now, you, I believe you started your career with play-by-play, at least up on air and kind of getting into that uh, that area, like you said, of Pennsylvania, and you started doing some play-by-play, and then you kind of peeked up into the ESPN realm of that. What kind of led to show hosting? Because since then, it seems like it's been less play-by-play, more so the the show hosting side. No, it was it, my first my first few TV jobs were all were show hosting or doing okay. And I just got a chance to do some uh, uh, some play-by-play during that job at Allentown. But I've done you know here at ESPN, I've done play-by-play for. Uh, the arena league for a while when we had that but mostly mm-hmm. my job is studio hosting what do you like more that's a great question um for the longest time i i really didn't think about it it was like okay what what can i do what yeah. can I, do? Uh, I i really look for 15 years i hosted nfl live and hosting the draft has been just so great so i i really enjoyed that like uh, you know I, i've been very fortunate at espn i've covered the PGA Championship. I've covered U.S. Open and, and uh, golf, and, and British Open and golf, U.S. Open and tennis, Wimbledon. Uh, been to the Olympics. I was our correspondent for the 2002 uh, Winter Games in Salt Lake City. I've, it's been unbelievable. But by far, doing NFL Live and doing the draft uh, was ju- it's just been great. It's just been so much fun. And the draft is the ultimate reality television show, right? You know. You, can't script for it you have no idea what's going to happen and this year specifically it was nuts but you just have sort of ride or tell she bucks you off i guess these uh, a rodeo parlance and it was fun i mean it's just you never know what's going to happen and that, that's the best part of it you plan uh but as my friend herm edwards likes to say any plan that can't be changed is a bad plan and we've had to change the plan a million different times during the draft so that's been fun now, you mentioned the draft, you mentioned this year and all the challenges around COVID-19 and it being virtual. You were tabbed with the task of being the sole host for ESPN and the, the sole individual that had to, everything kind of ran through you. What was that challenge like and what were some of the toughest parts of that job? So I have to say, um, I, I do appreciate when people say that, but for to think that it was just me is just, you know, there are so many good people behind the scenes that really had the, did the heavy lifting, especially this year. You know, our, our overall producer, Seth Markman, our producers, Ron Madansky and, and, and Brian Ryder, and all the tech people that put it together. Now, it was, diff- it was different, don't get me wrong. It was weird, and it was unusual. First of all, normally we're on location with, a, you know, we had last year in Nashville close to 750,000 people downtown Nashville for the three days of the draft. It was nuts. Unbelievable. We were expecting close to a million people to Las Vegas this year. And 53 days before the draft, we pulled the plug on that, and somehow we were able to put together what was an incredible virtual experience with so many people working together. So, like, for me, the preparation of the draft didn't change at all. Like, 
They didn't, it, it didn't change one iota. The only thing that changed for me was how we were going to present the information that we had prepared for. And the people behind the scenes did an amazing job. Like, I was the only one in the studio. We had Kurt Warner and Michael Irvin and Daniel Jeremiah from the NFL Network, along with our people, Lewis Riddick, Pogba McFarlane, Mel Kuyper Jr. And they were all remote. So I was in the studio, and there were literally two other people with me in the studio. And they were all set up remotely. And we, you know, we had Commissioner Goodell wired in, obviously, and had, I think, 200 potential draftees or 100 potential draftees. Uh, wired up with remote units, plus every general manager, every owner, and every coach. And it went off without a hitch. And it, as, as we were getting ready to do this, we had some glitches before this began. The fact that we basically did that for three days with really minimal interruption was unbleeping believable. And uh, I was really proud of people that, that pulled that off together and made it a lot easier. And I've said it since we hosted our own virtual draft. Everybody behind the scenes needs a substantial raise throughout the course of this COVID-19 pandemic because uh, it makes those on air look a lot better than they actually are just based off of the fact that the technical side is taken care of uh, even more. But now you growing up a Cowboys fan, you, you have to stay neutral with your, your national television audience. But do you keep an eye on, on how the Cowboys did during the draft? Because there's a lot of yeah. excitement around those picks. Yes. I mean, they kind of reverse engineered it, in my, in my opinion, but they got it. I mean, like, they weren't expecting CD to be there. And if he was sixth on their board, I think he was sixth on their pre-draft board, and you have him, what, at 17, you got to take him. So, you know, obviously a lot of people thought that was a luxury item, but – you now have Michael Gallup, Mari Cooper, and CeeDee Lamb, which is an unbelievable trio of wide receivers. And then to still have Diggs on the board when you go in the second round, get him, was remarkable. Like, in, in any scenario, would you have said to a Cowboy fan, you're going to get Diggs and you're going to get CeeDee Lamb in the first round? They'd be like, oh, yeah, right. So they get those two. And quite frankly, I liked a lot of the other picks as well, especially the kid Neville Gallimore. Out of, uh, out of Oklahoma, I thought that was a steal where they got him. I thought the Cowboys sort of out of luck and happenstance, and also when when the players were there to take the right players, I thought they had him. I really did. Now, with that kind of paired with some of the other offseason moves that they've made, Dontari Poe, Gerald McCoy, haha, Clinton Dix on the defensive side of the football, what are you kind of thinking going into 2020, and how is their season going to look, assuming that it is a full season? Well, we just did a list this week on Golik and Wingo, uh, my top three-ish teams that are Super Bowl or bust this year, and the Cowboys were number one on my list because, wow. and again, I want to be clear, it's not they're the number one team that I think to win the Super Bowl, it's who are the teams that are all in on if we don't get to the Super Bowl, it won't be a successful season, because I think they have everything that they need. Now, you could question whether or not they're going to get something out of Alden Smith, who hasn't played since 2015, 2015 or 2016, from the pass rush, and that's going to make up for the loss of Robert Quinn and others. But, you know, they've sort of managed to make this work. Now, I would have signed the quarterback first before I signed everybody else. Jerry, I'm just saying. <laughs> I mean, I, I like Jalen Smith. I, I, I like Lael Collins. I like all those players. I like Ezekiel Elliott. Normally, you take care of the durable quarterback first now they've got him he's going to be there this year but the reason why this i think is so important is there's a, still a real divide over years on what Dak and the cowboys are willing to agree to they can't go into next year with him on the franchise tag at over 37 million dollars because at the at the best case scenario the, 
the cap is going to stay flat going into 2021, and it might take a dip. You can't have a quarterback taking up $37.1 million of your cap space, especially if it's not going to go up going into 2021. It's a big year for them, and they need to make it work with all the pieces this year. So that's one of the reasons why I put them as the top of the teams that are Super Bowl or bust. And you talk about Super Bowl or bust, and I'll get your prediction, or maybe not prediction, but your favorite. We'll say favorite coming up here in just a little bit. But uh, talking about Dak Prescott and staying on the, the topic of the what is the franchise quarterback right now for the Cowboys, you, you go and add Andy Dalton. You have a little bit of an insurance policy with him backing up Dak Prescott. But what is your opinion of Pres- Prescott himself as a player, not necessarily the contract negotiation? I think he's the most underappreciated quarterback in the NFL. Um, because the first of all, look, I'm not a huge quarterback wins guy. I, I'm sure you've seen me. I mean, teams win games, quarterbacks help them win games. And yes, they have uh, maybe more of an influence, but at the end of the day, if you don't have everything else, you can have a great quarterback and it doesn't matter. And we've certainly seen that throughout the case in history. It's a little more skewed now, but I'm not a huge quarterback wins guy, but he is a winning durable quarterback in the NFL and durability. It may be the most, uh, important ability in the NFL. He hasn't missed a game in four years because of injury. He's a big, strong kid who came within one yard of tying Tony Romo's uh, franchise record for most passing yards in a single season. He has all the weapons at his disposal. You have a running game that I think is going to be fine. Well, offensive line isn't what it was when he was his rookie year in 2016, but it's, it's, it's more than good enough. Uh, and you have a defense that I think is going to be okay. Uh, I, I don't understand the back hate. I don't understand the, oh, he's just an advocate. He's not. Like, if, if you really want to be honest about it, and talk to people who know what they're talking about in terms of people. I mean, if you, we'll put it this way. If you really want to find that out, let him be a free agent. Watch what happened. Watch the 20 teams that would run to sign Dak Prescott, because that's exactly what would happen. So uh, for all the people that consider him an average to above average quarterback, I suggest you take up a hobby because football watching is not your strength. (laughs) Hey, I like it. You're you're antagonizing even now uh, talking about Dak Prescott and some of those that are out there. That I just don't get it. I just don't get it. I mean, look, for example, I think Carson Wentz is a great quarterback. I Mm -hmm. really do. He's not durable. That's a that's a thing. Now we can talk about maybe he's a better. uh, You know, you you like some of the skill things he does better than Dak, but when you put the the ability with durability, I mean, one guy's there all the time, and that's kind of a big deal, you know? Especially in this day and age, whenever you have to have quarterbacks that have to do so many different things with the weapons that are around them, and now Dak Prescott has those weapons. He has the three receivers we mentioned earlier. He's got Ezekiel Elliott, Tony Pollard, Blake Jarwin on that offensive side. How much pressure do all these weapons actually put on Kellen Moore as the offensive coordinator to make sure that things are taken care of, or even Mike McCarthy, an offensive guru, taken care of the right way. Yeah, you know, Kellen had a very interesting year as a first-year offensive coordinator. Came out of the gate strong, obviously, those first three wins. Um, but if you noticed a pattern late in the season, and I'm sure you guys talked about this, let's take, for example, the Thanksgiving Day game against the Bills. They went right down the field on that first drive, march, 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 big dose of Zeke Elliott in the running game. Boom, they score a touchdown. And then you look at Zeke Elliott's carries per the rest of that game as opposed to the opening drive. Then there was a Thursday night game against the Bears in Chicago. Right down the field. Boom, boom, boom. Great run pass combination mix in there. They score a touchdown. 
And then what happened in the rest of that game? He got away from the running game. Look, obviously this is a passing league. That's the way it's going. It's the way it's going to be. But for the Cowboys to be successful, especially the way the team was built and the position they paid first in Zeke Elliott, they're going to have to feature that running game. I felt at times last year, uh, and we, Andy Reid has gone through this in his Hall of Fame career. You forget about the running game. And my God, just go back a couple of years ago when Alex Smith was still the quarterback and they had a 21 or 18-point lead against the Titans at home and then Kareem Hunt uh, uh, got hurt. Uh, no, Kareem Hunt didn't get hurt. Travis Kelsey got hurt and mm-hmm. they went away from Kareem Hunt. When you have a weapon, use it and mix it in. And I think that, that last year, Kellen, at times, during stretches, forgot about the running game. And, you know, you script those first plays of every series for every game, and then sometimes I felt like they threw away the script. And those are minor things that can be tweaked on because there's one thing for – there's two things, right? There's game preparation and there's game management. I've always said Mike Martz, when he was the offensive coordinator and the head coach of the Rams, one of the best game pre- preparers I ever saw in the NFL – and then the game would start, and he'd go crazy. You know, he just he would he would throw away challenges, and he would, you know, do things that just didn't make any sense. You have to manage the game, and you can go back to the Super Bowl. You know, Kyle Shanahan's got a ten point lead in that fourth quarter, uh, and then it's cut to a a four point lead, and then uh, the first thing they do is they run on first down, and then they throw it on second and third down. Now you could say. George Kittle was wide open. If Chris Jones doesn't bat the ball down, that's a first down. Yeah, but you know he was there before with a with a lead twenty eight to twelve in Super Bowl fifty one on third and one with eight minutes to play. Even if you don't get the first down, you probably run out enough clock where the Patriots can't have the comeback. Stick to what got you there. And Kyle Shanahan made a living during the postseason out of making sure Jimmy Garoppolo didn't throw the football. If you look at what they did during the playoffs. So you have to stick with the things that matter. And I felt like at times last year, Kellen got away from the balance that made the Cowboys very successful. Now, the term putting the training wheels back on Kellen Moore's bike has kind of been loosely used throughout the the facility since the hiring of Mike McCarthy. Do you think McCarthy can bring an added element of maybe some maturity and game management to Kellen Moore in his offense? He has to. Um, You know, like I was mentioning uh, Mike March, when Dick Vermeil was the head coach of the Rams, every once in a while, like he, you know, he let Mike call the game, but every once in a while he'd get on the headsets and say, "Give the ball to 28," and that would be Marshall Falk. Because you know, Mike March, when Grady Sean Turk, you know, Tory Holt, Isaac Bruce, Oz Akeem, they had everything you could possibly want. They also had the best player in football. Not that was not a quarterback in Marshall Falk, and Mike March forgot. And every once in a while, Dick Vermeil get the ball to 28, and I think at some point this year might have to have Mike McCarthy say to Kellen. We got a good running back. Let's just make sure we, because even if it doesn't work, you have to make the other defense defend the run. Because if they're not, if they're just, if you're not ever running and they're always just going after the quarterback, well, you're, you're making it easier for them. So it, I get it. It's intricate. It's not as easy as, as as I'm stating it. But at the end of the day, you still have to make them think about the run as well as the pass. Now, what is your biggest concern going into 2020? Because you talk about the concern of the game management side, but is there anything on the defensive side or overall that you really are worried about for the Cowboys? You know, Byron Jones was a very good player. Now, he wasn't the player he was a couple of years ago for the Dallas Cowboys, but he was still a very good player. I think they have a lot of young secondary players, but you know what makes a good secondary is a good pass rush. And, you know, every secondary is a lot better when that quarterback's got to get rid of the ball faster. So 
the biggest thing for me is can they generate enough heat? I mean, Tank Lawrence had another good season last year. The thing about uh, that Tank is people all look at the sacks. He defends the run as well. Like, he's a really good all-around defensive player, and he's good at setting the edge. They're going to have to find a way to bring a little pressure. And, you know, with the contract that they gave Alden Smith, that wasn't just a here's a minimum and let's see what happens. They, they gave him some money, which either means, A, there was competition for Alden Smith, or they really believe that he can contribute. That is something that is, you know, I, I'm going to need to see that, right? I mean, he hadn't played in a long, long time. Now, when he played, he was really good. That was a long time ago. So if you're ask, if you're expecting, like, massive amount of production from Alden Smith, that might be a little bit of a stretch. So we're going to need to find a way to get to the, get to the quarterback. That, I think that's the biggest thing from the Cowboys on the defensive side that I'm going to need to see. You're echoing what both Isaiah Stanback and uh, Rob Phillips have echoed on our show throughout the course of the offseason is let's not rely too heavily on that right defensive end spot. Let's just stop the run, help our linebackers out, thus helping out the secondary. Now, I teased this a little bit earlier. Super Bowl favorite. Who right now, not a prediction, but who is your favorite going into 2020 to win this year's Super Bowl? Well, look, it hasn't happened since Super Bowls 38 and 39 when the Patriots repeated. Mm -hmm. But try and tell me how you're going to stop Patrick Mahomes. Uh, He's he's the best player in football. He's going to set the market uh, whenever he signs that contract. He's the ultimate weapon. I mean, his super – the, what, the best way I can describe Patrick Williams, or as I refer to him, Hall of Famer Patrick Williams, <laughs> uh, is that that Super Bowl was the worst game of his career until he decided it wasn't going to be the worst game of his career. You know, I mean, just look at their playoff run. Down 24 to the Texans, no problem. Down 10 twice in the AFC Championship game to the Titans, not a thing. Down 10 points with seven-plus minutes to play to the 49ers. Third and 15, the audio clip of the year was Patrick Mahomes on the sidelines during that review of the drop by Tyree Hill, looking at Eric Bieniemy, the offensive coordinator for the Chiefs, and said, do we have time to run Wasp? Oh, my God. And they run Wasp, and he is so wide open. By the way, that throw, on a, I think he dropped back 11 steps to get that ball to avoid the rush. That throw was the longest air yard throw of the entire season for Patrick Mahomes to Tyree Hill, and that, that changed the entire game. That dude is incredible, and it's, it's not just the plays and the offense that, that Andy Reid runs. When the machine breaks down, Patrick Mahomes can do things that no other quarterback can. Now, you add that team coming back almost intact, both offensively and defensively, and to get the perfect running back in the first round of the draft, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, and the things he was able to do in college at, at LSU. I mean, it's like... God came down and said, Andy, take this gift. And so <laughs> to me, the Chiefs are by far the team that I think still has the best chance uh, to win the Super Bowl. Now, it's interesting on the, on the NFC side. Look, I think the Niners are a very good team. But it took the last play of the last game of the regular season for them to get home field advantage. And the NFC West didn't get uh, easier. It got tougher. You could legitimately make a case for all four teams in the NFC West making the playoffs. Seattle is always going to be there with Russell Wilson. Mm-hmm. Look, I, I know people think the Rams are done because they lost Todd Gurley and a bunch of other players. But even with Todd Gurley being a non-factor last year, under the current playoff format we're going with this year, they would have been the seventh seed. 
And Kyler Murray just got DeAndre Hopkins outside alongside Larry Fitzgerald. The NFC West is going to be a tough out this year, and I think it's going to be harder for them to make it back based on the division, even though they're a very good team, than it is for anybody to upset or upend the Chiefs as the AFC representative. Now, final question before we, before we let you go. You, you mentioned the, the new playoff format. That's just one of many new changes coming to the NFL. And uh, you've got the longer season coming up in a couple of seasons. Uh, you've got the, the, the new playoff format. But most notably this year, COVID-19 and having to deal with that pandemic. Uh, what exactly do you feel like the, the protocols are going to look like? And what is this year going to look like if you had to make an opinion today? When, when Rudy Gobert tested positive for the first time, the first NBA player, first professional player, tested positive, well, and then you know, his teammate tested positive and he got a few more going through it, I, I think the way we deal with it now is, okay, like Malcolm Brogdon just tested positive. Like, I'll be fine. I'm asymptomatic. I'll be fine. I'll keep joining my team. The question's going to become not will people have positive tests. That's going to happen. We're seeing that with universities and you know, all the baseball players. The question is going to become how serious does it uh, affect those players that are tested positive, and how can you contain the spread? Like for baseball, for this restart, they basically have a 30, a 60-man taxi squad. We're talking about that they can bring onto the regular season. The NFL is going to have to adopt that model. I mean, we're going to have to waive whatever we think are our normal roster exclusions or limitations, because as Herm Edwards, my good friend, says, if you're tra- practicing social distancing, you are a terrible football player. There's no way around that. So we can have all these provisions about training camp and doing this and doing that. But today, one one offensive line is going to have to run into another defensive line, and all that's out the window. So when there are tests that show up and test positive, how can we effectively uh, take those players out the test positive until they're okay and bring in someone else to fill that position? Because the last thing we can have is a team that suddenly has 10 players out of a 46-man roster that test positive. They're going to have to find a way to keep the fluidity of the roster going forward. As long as they're playing football, I think that's the biggest challenge. Because those tests are coming. There's no way around it. There's no way around it. The question then becomes is how do we keep the roster fluid so we, have, we don't have players or teams forfeiting games because we can't field enough players. And hopefully we stay safer than normal, but we also yep. stay ready and, and willing to, to be able to uh, adapt. It's kind of like what you were saying early on. you got to be able to adapt. In broadcasting with this COVID-19, it's, it's a whole big thing of, of being able to adjust. And hopefully that's uh, better said or easier said than done uh, moving forward. But, Trey, I wanted to thank you again so much for joining us here on Talking Cowboys. If you ever make it back down or whenever you make it back down here to the Lone Star State, you got a Miller Light and, and a, a tour of the star on us. Have you ever been to the star as a Cowboys fan? Uh, I, I have not. Uh, you know, I've obviously been to the new stadium a bunch. I have a bunch of mm-hmm. friends. I've not. I've yet to see the facility, so I, I will. I will absolutely take you up on it. <laughs> Sounds good. We'll we'll welcome you down here to Frisco, of course, whenever thing everything blows over. But until then, stay safe. Thank you again for joining us, man. Well, no problem. Take care. So for Trey Wingo, I'm Kyle Yeomans. Thanks so much for listening and watching here on Talking Cowboys. We'll see you next time.